Listen, those are the drums of liberty. We have good news. Supply-side economics wins again. Here is yet another example that has been tried and been achieved. Let's talk about it on this Liberty Minute. Welcome to the Theory to Action podcast, where we examine the timeless treasures of wisdom from the great books in less time to help you take action immediately and ultimately to create and lead a flourishing life. Now, here's your host, David Kaiser. Hello, I am David, and welcome back to the Liberty Minute. Now, I told you last week I would be back with some great news, and so here I am to deliver that great news. So for the better part of the last month, I have been reading a fascinating biography by Benjamin Netanyahu. The title of the book is Bibi, My Story. And if you don't know anything about Bibi Netanyahu, let me share a brief biography with you. He was Prime Minister of Israel from 1996 to 1998, and then again from 2009 to 2021. Before he was Prime Minister, from 67 to 72, he served as an elite soldier and commander in the Special Elite uh, Special Forces Unit of the Israeli Defense Forces. Graduated from MIT. He actually did serve as Israel's ambassador to the United Nations from 1984 to 1988 before he was elected to the Israeli parliament as a member of the Likud party. So that's a brief biography. So with that out of the way, let me say this. I believe Bibi Netanyahu will go down in history as the Winston Churchill of our time, the 21st century. I know there's a lot of talk about the Ukrainian leader Zelensky being the Winston Churchill of our time. But as they used to say down on the farm, at least to me, that dog don't hunt. So if I were a betting man, and I'm not, but if I were, I would say put your money on BB. In fact, I would say slide all the money. Over to BB's corner because I'm quite confident you're going to get your money back and much, much more. Now, why can I say this? Well, I believe there's three important points around this. First, our current anti-Catholic, Catholic President Joe Biden. He absolutely hates Bibi. So there's your first good sign. Joe Biden has been wrong on more things in his 50-year political life than he's ever been right. Now, you will never hear any of this from our corrupt major media, but history will bear this out. And second, anything that Joe Biden recommends in the area of foreign policy, you can almost bet, and this is pretty astounding, but any recommendation that Joe Biden has made in foreign policy, you can bet the exact opposite will be the United States' best course of action. <laughs> I mean, this guy has been wrong on every major foreign policy decision in the last 30 to 40 years. It's laughable that anyone would take this guy's opinion seriously. But let's take it seriously for just a hot second. 
in fact, Secretary of State under George W. Bush, but was kept on by President Barack Obama, Robert Gates, told us all of this in his June 2011 memoir, Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary of War. His actual quote is this. Still, I think he, Biden, has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. And after one meeting at the White House, Mullen, this is still in the quote, this is the Admiral Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. After one meeting at the White House, Mullen and I were riding back to the Pentagon together, and Mike turned to me and said, you know you agreed with the vice president today. I said I realized that, and I was therefore rethinking my position, end quote. <laughs> so if you're on the wrong side of Joe Biden, you are on the right side of the country. And now, sadly, the country is experiencing this firsthand. But I digress. So the real reasons you can be fully confident that BB is a solid bet is these three. First, he will be the Winston Churchill of the 21st century, and this comes just after he won another term as Prime Minister of Israel. That's extremely important. This is his third time. So he's now the longest-serving Prime Minister. And second, this guy took the Prime Minister's job, or actually the, the Finance Minister's job, way back in 2003. Now, this is when the Israeli economy was in shambles, and Ariel Sharon was PM of Israel, and not only did he stabilize it, but he turned it around, almost on poor, par with what Ronald Reagan did from 1981 to 1988, and what Margaret Thatcher did for Britain's economy in the, uh, in the 70s, 70s and early 80s. In fact, let's dig into what exactly Bibi Netanyahu did in Israel during this time to turn the economy around. And with that, let's go to the book, Bibi, My Story, for our first pull quote. In 2005, the Nobel laureate Milton Friedman wrote this about Israel's economic malaise. Israel is a nation with great economic potential, yet it is clear it is a clear case of arrested economic development. Israel's human capital and geographical location at the heart of the Middle East should have naturally produced a thriving and prosperous economy. Israel can be the Hong Kong of the Middle East, but that potential has been blocked for decades. What held it back? Far-reaching and rigid government intervention in the economy. Socialist policies embraced by the government and unnecessary state ownership by critical means of production. Israel can change all this by adopting broad free market policies. Fortunately, Finance Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who specialized in economic issues, understands the problem and is willing to use his political capital to bring a solution. This was easier said than done. In 2003, it required persuading not only my government colleagues, but also the public at large, that we needed a radical shift to free markets. Now, this is, this is we're back from the quote 
Uh, so this is BB talking now. As finance minister, I often began meetings with members of the public with a query, who's the richest person in the world? Bill Gates was the immediate response. In 2003, the founder of Microsoft topped every major list of individual wealth. Okay, who's the richest person in the world 20 years ago? Or who was the richest person in the world 20 years ago? One of the older members of the audience usually got it right. The Sultan of Brunei. That's right, I would respond. The Sultan of Brunei sits on a small sea of oil. 20 years ago, he was a perennial number one on the list of the world's richest persons. Bill Gates overtook him because conceptual products are now more valuable than raw materials. Products of the mind can make you a lot richer than oil. The audience would nod in agreement. Now, which country produces the most conceptual products relative to population size? Israel, the audience would respond in unison. So one final question. Now the audience was taught with expectation. If we're so smart, how come we ain't rich? How was it possible that in 2003, Israel, one of the world's most technologically gifted countries, was stuck in the middle rungs of the global economic ladder as a, quote, developing economy with a GDP per capita of only $17,000? Israel was blessed with creative, talented citizens who possessed a natural entrepreneurial spirit. Israeli military intelligence had developed generations of gifted knowledge workers. Israel spent more on R&D relative to GDP than any other country on earth. So indeed, how come we weren't rich? To me, the answer was clear. Israel had become rich, but in the wrong ways. Rich in bureaucracy, rich in welfare, rich in taxes, rich in unions, rich in monopolies. Yet it was poor in the most precious of commodities, freedom, the freedom to initiate and profit from economic enterprise and the fruits of one's labor. Wow. B.B. Netanyahu nails it. He gets it exactly right. But did you get that first part about what Milton Friedman said about Israel in the very beginning? Let's go over that again because you don't want to miss that. So going back to the book, 2005, the Nobel laureate Milton Friedman wrote this about Israel's economic malaise. Israel is a nation with great economic potential, yet it has a clear case of arrested economic development. Israel's human capital and geographical location at the heart of the Middle East should have produced a thriving and prosperous economy. And this was what caught me. I underlined and highlighted this. Israel can be the Hong Kong of the Middle East, but that potential has been blocked for decades. What held it back? Far-reaching and rigid government intervention in the economy. Socialist policies embraced by the government and unnecessary state ownership of critical means of production. Israel can change all of this by adopting broad free market policies. And that's our first important nugget of wisdom and of liberty from this book. Israel can be the Hong Kong of the Middle East, but that potential has been blocked for decades. Wow. Let that sink in. 
So what's been happening in Israel since 2003 when Bibi started on correcting Israel's economy? Let's go back to the book. Seeking to help the poor, successive governments doled out welfare indiscriminately. The number of people receiving guaranteed income from welfare went through the roof between 1990 and 2002, growing 15 times faster than the population. To pay for these expenditures, heavy taxes were levied upon workers and businesses, further depressing economic activity. Most of the Israeli economy was hopelessly mired in the antiquated semi-socialist bog, arresting the flow of market forces and blocking enterprise. Israel's technological power prowess was no cure for these, ev- these ills. Technology, science, and education by themselves do not make you wealthy. Otherwise, Soviet Russia would have been among the world's richest countries. Free markets are the indispensable component for wealth creation. Put another way, technology without free markets does not produce wealth. Free markets without technology do. But technology and free markets are an unbeatable combination. It's really hard to imagine that Israel, since its founding in 1948, essentially operated under socialist policies. I understand they always had a war, like literally every five years in defending themselves from the War of Independence in 1948 to uh, a lot of skirmishes all the way through the 50s. And then we get to the to the Six Day War and then we get to the Yom Kippur War. And then we get to the Antifadas. So I understand that Israelis were just perpetuated with war all the time. They were constantly having to defend their borders. But you would think that someone in the last 60 years would have said, hey, we need to stop what we're doing on the economic side because we have a lot of potential here. So thankfully, Bibi showed up on the scene. Let's go back to the book. Israel, Israelis had not grown up in a culture of competing lemonade stands. Our one shared experience was service in the army. In a nationally televised live news conference in which I presented my policy, I described Israelis' economy, economic malady with a story from my first day in basic training. The company commander ordered us to line up in a straight row on the parade ground for what was called the elephant race. I was first in line. Netanyahu, he said, put the man to your right on your shoulders. Every other other soldier do the same. I had to put a medium-sized soldier on my shoulders. To my right, a small soldier had one of the biggest men in the unit straddled on his shoulders, while a big soldier carried one of the smaller men on his back. When the commander blew the whistle, I could barely move forward. The small soldier to my right collapsed after the first two steps. The big man shot off like a cannon and won the race. All economies, I said, were engaged in a similar race. In each the public sector, the fat man straddles the soldier's shoulders of the private sector, the thin man. The private sector creates most of the added value in economies in the engine of job creation and economic growth. It carries the public sector sector on its back and pays for it. 
In London, I had heard a tour guide express this truth in unbellished cockney. He pointed to the city of London, the seat of business, and then to Westminster, the seat of government. Here's where they make it, and there's where they spend it, he said. (laughs) If the public sector gets too big, the private sector will slow down or collapse under its excess weight. A bloated public sector, big government, will demand higher taxes and higher interest rates to sustain it, and these, too, will place an additional burden on the private sector. 2003, Israel's public sector had reached well over 50% of GDP, among the highest in the developed world, an unbearable weight on the shoulders of a shrinking private sector. Taxes were sky high, and government and union monopolies stifled competition. The Israeli economy was facing imminent collapse. The path to recovery was clear. Reduce the public sector, strengthen the private sector, and remove barriers to competition. The fat man, thin man image soon became the stuff of heated debate. Taxi drivers discussed it with passengers. Stand-up comedians used it in their routines, and government unions rejected it. Wow. Is that so good? I mean, very good. Fat man, thin man. What a great analogy. And the reason it's a great analogy is because it works and it's the truth. And the great thing that BB was persuading his fellow Israelis about was classic supply side economics. So much so that I think you will love this nugget. This is one of the greatest gems I have read in any book in some time. And as a side note, maybe we need to have a greatest hits album, like the greatest nuggets of wisdom that I've come up over the last 150 books or so. So with turntable fanfare, like a radio DJ from the 1970s, let me spin this classic tune to you with the light. Going back to the book for what may be our single greatest nugget of wisdom and liberty ever. Here we go. I took this even further and announced that if tax revenues exceeded expectations, we would lower tax rates again. This last step was met with incredulity. I explained that reducing Israel's high tax rates would actually increase tax revenues. How could cutting taxes produce more tax revenues? My critics ridiculed my statement. Tax cuts, they argued, would reduce tax revenues and increase the deficit, thereby further shortchanging vital government services. Haven't you heard of the Laffer Curve? I asked my detractors in the Knesset Finance Committee. Laffer, they asked derisively, who is Laffer? Who's this Laffer? It's Laffer. And for your information, there are non-Jewish economists, I shot back. While there's still a debate in certain situations over the applicability of the curve popularized by by the economist Arthur Laffer to show that cutting tax rates could result in increased total revenue, I had no doubt that it would work in a grossly overtaxed Israel. 
I believe that putting more money in the hands of consumers and businesses would be a strong growth engine for the economy. Yet many Israelis have been taught to believe that growth engines were primarily government-funded projects, especially in infrastructure. I explained that roads and railways were important, and that they could be financed by private capital, but the biggest drivers of growth were increases in competition, productivity, and investments brought by brought about by market reforms. And what will further fuel economic growth, I asked in exasperation? Lower taxes, lower taxes, and still lower taxes. It's hard to, today to re- reconstruct this dismissive reaction my drive to lower taxes encountered. It was as if there weren't plenty of examples showing the countries with lower tax rates experiencing experienced more rapid growth. This is especially true in the global economy, where investors and consumers and workers can transition with relative ease to lower tax economies. A country like Israel at the higher end of the tax spectrum really had no choice but to cut taxes. Bravo, 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 right on. BB nails it. Cutting taxes produces more tax revenue. It's been tried, tried, tried again. Calvin Coolidge did it. John F. Kennedy did it. Ronald Reagan did it. And for a short stint, Donald Trump did it. Supply-side economics works. If you have ears to hear, let you hear those golden words. Now, economist Arthur Laffer showed that cutting tax rates can result in increased total revenue for the government. And that is what BB nailed. He just absolutely changed the course and direction of the Israeli economy. And what were the results of those supply-side economic policies in Israel? Well, let's go back to the book. With lower tax rates, Israel's economy began growing rapidly, and much of the criticism over lowering taxes subsided. The more we lowered tax rates, the lower the debt-to-GDP ratio fell, from 102% in 2003 to 89% in the first half of 2006. A decade later, thanks to robust growth and the spending caps we put in place, it had dropped to 60%. And by 2008, for the first time in anyone's memory, the fat man and the thin man weighed the same. How great is that? By 2008, the fat man and the thin man weighed the same. So when President Bush 43 was abandoning the laws of free market capitalism to save free market capitalism, and we were going through our own recession here in the United States, Bibi Netanyahu was actually doing the real work and had leadership, economic leadership, showing the whole world and even America herself how to lead and make effective economic decisions when your nation is in peril and when they had to grow their economy. The fact that Bibi almost single-handedly turned around the Israeli economy and has kept it growing at an incredible high rate 
through and even past the 2008 world economic slowdown and has resulted in Israel becoming a real and definite leader and one of the fastest growing new emerging economies in the Middle East is a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. Now, many believe this economic Israeli miracle over the past 20 years is what drove many, many in the Gulf states in the Middle East to begin to partner and sign peace deals with Israel during the 2020 year. I just finished reading a fascinating book called Sledgehammer by Trump's former Israeli ambassador. I'll be sure to share with you some takeaways soon enough. But as for Bibi, like I mentioned earlier, I believe Bibi will go down as the Winston Churchill of the 21st century. So in today's Liberty Minute, there is good news out there. I know we don't see a lot of it. But there is a new emerging global democracy, which is creating wealth and prosperity by following the tenets of supply-side economics. And the fat man is losing weight, and the thin man is getting stronger. And so yet again, we have another vindication that supply-side economics works. So stay tuned to what Israel is doing. And watch in real time what the Winston Churchill of the 21st century is doing. There won't be another one for a long time. He is unique. And the world in Israel will be better for it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this Theory to Action podcast. Be sure to check out our show page at teammojoacademy.com where we have everything we discussed in this podcast as well as other great resources. Until next time, keep getting your mojo on. Are you a voracious reader who yearns for a deeper understanding of your favorite books? Or perhaps you're a busy professional seeking to enrich your knowledge, but short on time. The Mojo Academy 2.0 is your perfect solution. Our revamped service now includes beautifully designed monthly written reviews and PDF format to accompany our popular audio reviews. These aren't just summaries. These are comprehensive and insightful explorations of each book packed with the actual quotes from the book to enhance your understanding. With usually six to nine pages per review, they are perfect reference tools to take your learning to the next level. Get your free Mojo Academy review in written format at teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes for that free link. Again, teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes and you will see the link for the free written review. Get yours today.